Hello, and welcome to the Raising Athletes podcast. We have a very special guest for you, our second one of the year. We're off to a, a blazing start here um, at Raising Athletes. But we're so excited to talk to you about sleep and how important it is, not only for us, but even more importantly for our growing teens with the expert Lisa Lewis. But before we get into that, a little bit about ourselves. I'm Kirsten Jones. I'm a peak performance and sports parenting coach, and I love helping parents and their athletes figure out what's holding them back and release those limitations so they can move on to, to, to great things. And I'm Susie Walton. Walton. I am the founder of Indigo Village, uh, created a parenting course, The Joy of Parenting. Um, I have a course called The Joy of Raising Teens. Uh, four sons, and they were all athletes. I consider myself still an athlete, and I love these podcasts. And I am so excited that Lisa is on our call today because I just love what you're doing. So thank you. Thank Welcome. you so much for having me. <laughs> this is great. So Lisa's book came out last June. Um, and full disclosure, I met her through a writing group. I think it was on a Facebook group. And we were able to connect and find we have so many similarities and she being a mom and understanding what all this is going through. So maybe we'll just start with, can you tell, tell us your journey of how you got to write this book? Sure, sure. So um I am a mom and I'm also a parenting journalist. Um, and those kind of uh, coalesced for me um, specifically on this topic back in 2015, because that was the year that my oldest, my son was entering high school. And at that point, um, our local high school started at 7.30 in the morning, which was incredibly early. It was the earliest he had ever had to go through to go to school all the way through, you know, as you go through elementary and middle and high. And it quickly became obvious that it was just really too early for all of us. Certainly too early for me, you know, getting in the car every day at 7.10 to drive him to school. Um, but for him too, because he was, you know, he would get in the car, he would sit there, but he was very quiet. It was obvious he wasn't really quite awake yet. And, you know, sending him off for a full day of school and then sports practice, you know, and then he'd crash and do it all over again. And it just, it, it, it was obvious that this was not the optimal schedule. So, of course, I start looking into it, you know, put on my journalist hat and, and sort of start delving into the question of why exactly our school started at 730. And um, quickly realized that it had been that way for years and years. Nobody could even remember a time that it hadn't started that early. But I also found that this was not just our district or our community. This was the case in so many communities around the country. Um, but what was actually really fortuitous, this again, this was 2015, the previous year, 2014, the American Academy of Pediatrics had just issued a very influential policy statement recommending that middle and high schools should not be starting any earlier than 8.30 in the morning because of the implications for sleep deprivation and then all the ramifications that that has. So I kind of tapped into this issue at a time when it really was primed to sort of hit a critical mass, started writing about it. Um, one of the pieces I wrote was an op-ed that ran in the LA Times um, the following fall. So my son was a sophomore at that point, still going to school every day at 7.30. But that op-ed, uh, which was called Why Schools Should Start Later in the Day, was read by one of our California state senators, uh, Senator Anthony Portentino, whose district is in Los Angeles, read that in the newspaper and, and it resonated with him because he had a high schooler of his own at that point. And it just so happened their high school was having discussions about start times. So 
He read my op-ed, he starts looking into it more, decides to introduce a bill, um, and I just got swept up in that entire journey. I ended up testifying in Sacramento the following summer on behalf of it. It was this lengthy two and a half year legislative journey. I won't bore you with all the details, um, except to say that it got all the way to the governor's desk one time and got vetoed. That was Governor Brown. Had to go through the whole process again. Finally got signed into law by Governor Newsom and went into effect um, just this past year in time for this current school year. So as of now, um, California's public middle and high schools, including charter schools, um, now have um, set times that they cannot start earlier than. So for high school, it's 8.30 or later. And for middle school, it's eight or later. And this is the only law of its kind in the entire country. We're the only state that, that sets, you know, minimum allowed start times. So it was really kind of tremendous to just be part of that. And then as part of that, ended up writing the book, The Sleep Deprived Teen, Why Our Teenagers Are So Tired and How Parents in Schools Can Help Them Thrive. That is fantastic. <laughs> so happy to as I was talking a little bit beforehand, like having four sons and they're all teenagers with middle school and high school combined. My question was like, what is it? Why do kid, why are the young, little kids starting at nine and these overgrown humans are having to get up and be somewhere at 730? Like it never made sense. And, you know, I started looking at here in San Diego and, and the excuse they were using here was that because of the bus system. Yes. Yeah. And it was really interesting because I did delve into that of why it was that we had, you know, that, that oftentimes the high schools were starting so early and in fact, often earlier than some of the, the other tiers. And you're right. In so many cases, it literally was because of bus transportation. So um, it dates back to it includes, you know, all these sort of larger um, societal forces like suburbanization and the consolidation into larger high schools and then schools starting to use buses because then these weren't necessarily neighborhood schools. And then as part of uh, cost cutting measures, you know, with budget in mind, um, school districts often decided that it made the most sense for them to just use one fleet of buses for all the levels, you know, elementary, middle and high. And so they set up a tiered system. But at the time they were doing this, the research on teen sleep was not yet widely known. And so they put these schedules in place, oftentimes defaulting to, oh, well, they're older, they should be able to handle it, we'll put them in the earliest slots. So I call those legacy schedules because they were put in place in many cases decades ago, and yet they've endured. Um, and that actually leads to one other point, which is that I was mentioning what we know now about teen sleep, which is that they shift to a later schedule. So when our kids hit puberty, they do shift to a later sleep schedule. It's called a circadian rhythm shift. So what that means is they're not feeling sleepy as early as they used to. So, you know, when you, when your kids are little, they're six, they jump out of bed at, you know, 630 in the morning, they're just full of energy, bubbly, ready to go. You run hard all day, they crash, you know, whatever, eight o'clock, eight, you know, 830. Teens don't do that. And that's because they're not feeling sleepy until later in the evening. And that means that they're also then not, you know, waking as early because they still need to be getting eight to 10 hours of sleep up until age 18. And so you just do the math and you can see where those early start times are really cutting into that. 
It's funny, right before I got on this call, I was with on a call with a tutoring company getting tutoring for my daughter for physics. And and we she was like, all right, let me know her availability. And I'm like, well, really from like 7 to 10 p.m. And she's like, well, you really let her on a call at nine o'clock at night? I'm like, oh yeah, her night's just getting going, right? Like I'm in bed, but yeah. she's wide awake and she actually would prefer to be, you know, because that's when she has time. She has volleyball practice after school and, you know, whatever. She's had other stuff going on. So by the time she sits down to do homework, you're, to your point, is more like nine or 10 at night. Yeah. And well, and that's another thing we can talk about is just the the amount of activities our kids have, because that does often push them to these later bedtimes, too. So there's several things sort of at play. But when it comes to their natural schedules, they have indeed shifted to a later schedule, you know, as, as you've seen. And, and when I say, um, you know, that they're not a, feeling sleepy till about 11, well, and of course, they're not all going to bed at 11 either. There are some who unfortunately are staying up far later than that. Yeah. Um, so what are some, talking to the parents that are listening, what are some tips you have for helping you, you had a quote about what parents can do to help tired teens? What are, what are, you, what are your biggest yeah. tips? Yeah. Well, so I think, so, so the first couple of, of um, essential things to remember, which we've just touched on are the fact that they do still need eight to 10 hours of sleep up until age 18. So even though they look like many adults, you know, certainly by the time they're juniors or seniors, they're not. So they don't yet have the adult range of seven to nine hours. So just keeping that in mind and that they have this shifted sleep schedule. Um, so based on that, there are a couple of things. The first is you look at what time they have to wake and that's where the school start times come into play. So here in California, we are fortunate that now that this law is in place, that's helping immensely. And many private schools already tended to start slightly later and certainly, you know, seeing it happen in the public school sphere um, has a ripple effect. So that's, that, that's super important when you look at, you know, what's causing them to, to wake early. You know, by and large, start times are the determining factor. The other piece of it is nighttime, what time they're going to bed. And so that's where there are some things that um, parents can be taking a look at. Because even with the optimal school start time, it is still possible to sabotage your sleep. I mean, you could have a teen who's up till 3 a.m. And, you know, you can't have them start school at noon. Like, that's just not going to happen. So you do have to look at what's happening in the evening. Um, so there are a couple things for that. Um, one is overscheduling. Just looking at the amount of activities our kids have going on. I know certainly, you know, when I look back when I was in high school, uh, which was quite a while ago, it does feel like there was not quite as much um, pressure to take as many honors in advanced level classes as there is today. Club sports really did not exist back then. Um, so, so there's a lot of things like that that have quietly ramped up over the years. And when you look at the cumulative effect of all that, sometimes our kids just are plain over schedule that they just have too much going on. So I think that's one piece where parents can take a look. Um, and that, you know, that, that's a, a bigger discussion because obviously, you know, they're doing it often. They're taking as many AP classes as they are because they're feeling pressured to do that by their schools, by their peers, by their community, by their desire to get into a quote unquote good college. So, I mean, there's sort of these larger issues we have to examine too. Like, will that one additional AP class make or break your future? Um, so over scheduling, that is absolutely one. If you find that, you know, they're just 
aren't enough hours left in the day after you figure out how much, how many hours they're in school, how many hours of homework for each of those classes, how many hours for sports practice or other extracurriculars. And if you add all that up and there is not a window left of eight to 10 hours, that's you know maybe a sign that it's time to reevaluate. Um, so that's a big one. Okay, I'm just gonna put a bit here because that AP business gets me a little cray cray. <laughs> I remember back when my son was in high school with my kids and his friend was applying to Harvard and he had taken so many AP classes in high school and he got, let's say maybe a B or, but he was like, oh, but it's an A really, if it wasn't AP and Harvard told him, and I don't know if I leave, I would leave to still doing this, but they're like, we don't look at an AP or not. We look at the grade. So we're not saying, oh, it was an AP. So he would have had an A. Like if there's a B on an AP, that's the B. And I have another client of mine whose son brilliant. And he's at a local college. It's a good college, but it was his last of 15 choices. And they said he had A, like in every AP, like he had all A's, all AP, just brilliant, but he had nothing else going on. And they feel like that's the only reason why he didn't get into these other schools because it he didn't show more of a well-rounded resource of a human so to speak so yeah like those ap classes can get a lot of kids in trouble well and just the the pressure they they feel to have to take those yeah. and you know in this in this scenario you just mentioned to have to take those and be well-rounded i mean like this is a standard of perfection that is almost impossible to to achieve so I think, um, you know, that's a broader discussion, certainly. And there are some schools that have set limits to how many AP classes kids are allowed to take, you know, looking at homework loads for classes. That's something parents can help with, by the way, because, you know, I know certainly my own kids' experience in high school, it's generally known which teachers tend to give, you know, three times as much homework as others. And maybe it's worth it, you know, maybe that class is, is a great class to want to take it, but maybe that's something to, to take into account when, when you're making a schedule. Um, because they just can't do every single possible thing out there and still have time to, to sleep and, 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 you know, do anything other than be a robot. <laughs> Another thing that's compounded that is the number of schools kids are applying to. So like a friend of my son's applied to 20 schools last year, which is, I think, fairly average now, which back in the day, I think I applied to one. Um, but you know, he applied to 20 schools and he got into one. So when you have every kid in the country applying to 15 to 20 schools and you can only go to one, you can't, you know, go to more than one, like that's impacting, you know, and then of course all the universities are doing early action and early decision because they want to look good. So there's this compounding effect of, you know, and I always tell my clients, like, you know, they say, well, my kid wants to take three APs, should he? And I'm like, well, what does he want to do? What is, is how interested in the topic is he? If it's something that he can't wait to get his hands on, then yeah, if it's something they gobble up anyway, great. But if it's, I'm doing it to check a box, forget about it, right? Go get an A in the regular class or the honors class, crush it and move on. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and certainly as adults, we're not expected to be a level performers in every single possible aspect of life, you know, so so to expect kids to be taking AP classes in every single subject de definitely does seem unrealistic. Uh, there's another piece of it, too, though, that I think um, obviously, you know, is related to all this, which is the stress and the anxiety and the mental health impact you know, of all of these pressures, you know, because kids are doing it because they feel that they need to. 
And so there's that, but then if they are doing so much that it is cutting into their sleep, it's just creating a vicious cycle because that in turn is exacerbating mental health issues, which we know are pretty severe for adolescents, for young adults, you know, at the high school level, at the college level. And that's a, a huge concern. So kids may seem outwardly, they're still getting good grades, you know, and they're managing to get it all done, but it often does come at a cost. Yeah, it's, um, I feel like it's real important for every family to look at their story, you know, their situation. And like you're saying, Kirsten, like asking them, what is it you want? And are you wanting to do this because you think you're, you're being expected to do this? Right. You, you know, or are you doing this because deep down inside you have that strong desire to whatever it might be to excel in this certain area. But, you know, cause a lot of kids will say, well, I, I thought you wanted me to get to a certain college or you know done it become a certain thing and so parents out there you gotta like no yes but no <laughs> like it's what yeah. you want because it's so much easier to achieve things when we want it not because we're thinking we're expected to do it because this is what the expectations are and parents, you parents you can put the expectations out there without them even but without even verbally saying them so it's you know like the tutor like your daughter probably asked for a tutor. I, I doubt you showed up one day and said, hey girl, your physicist isn't looking real. Well, I'm gonna get you a tutor. Like, no, I'm sure she said, mom, I would like some help. That's when I say, yeah, get a tutor, but don't hire tutors if your kids aren't wanting them. Like it's their journey, parents out there. Like everybody just needs to take a deep breath and step back and reevaluate, like you're saying, like the overload because it's yeah. killing our kids, it's, you know, it's it's killing them. So on many levels. Yeah. And it really, it really does come at a cost. So, but to your point also, these are conversations that, that, you know, probably parents should have with their teens, you know, about expectations, about looking when, when it looks like there's too much on the plate, you know, where can you perhaps cut back, come, you know, come down a level, et cetera, as opposed to just like a quick fix. These are going to be conversations. Um, and along those lines, I actually have another um, tip for parents, which is addressing tech use. <laughs> so, say that one. <laughs> oh, yeah, which, you know, I mean, tech is just ingrained in all of our lives. It's not just our teens. Um, it does feel like it used to be simpler <laughs> before we all had smartphones. But it's a huge topic. And it is something that, you know, really benefits from ongoing conversations as opposed to parents suddenly like, you know, setting rules, like all of a sudden now it's going to be this way. like that generally doesn't go over too well with your teens. <laughs> um, but it's complicated because they need tech to do their homework. They need to, you know, do their work online, turn in their assignments online. Um, but they also, of course, use it during their downtime. It's, it's embedded in their social lives. And it's the same way, you know, when I was a teenager, it was the telephone. I would spend hours on the telephone. And that's what teens are doing through social media. You know, whatever, you know, app they're using, the direct messaging, whatever, like that. It's a key part of their social world. So it's not that all tech is bad, but you still have to look at how many hours <laughs> they're on it. And, and the fact that if it's too close to bedtime, it can be revving them up, you know, as opposed to helping them wind down. So, you know, just as a, a point of reference, the official recommendation from the American Academy of Pediatrics is ideally no tech use one hour before bedtime. 
So that's the ideal to work toward. Again, may not always be super realistic, you know, in every situation, but knowing that helps because you have a goal in mind. And then also ideally getting your teams on board with it is explaining some of this and having them maybe come up with suggestions like, well, you know, if you can't necessarily start charging all the devices in the kitchen and they have it in their room, well, why don't you try putting it on the other side of the room, you know, see how that works and how that affects your sleep. So it, 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 it really is something where having the teens buy in helps and sort of recognizing too, not going in with a all tech is bad attitude because it's not, yeah. it's, it's so crucial uh, as part of their lives. And so we do need to recognize that too. I always tell parents the screen the screen's not the problem. Like the screen has a lot of good information behind it and it's gonna be here forever. The problem is is when the screen owns the child versus the child owning the screen. And so yes. I, I use the whole idea of teaching having using the screen as a form of self-management training and you know and having that comment and setting limits around the screens and seeing how they play with it. And um and I use the analogy of juggling three balls. And when you're good, you throw in a fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh ball. But if they start dropping, you go back to the three main ones. And in the analogy is, as teens, you have three responsibilities, you know, school, family, and let's say a sport. And as long as those are all going, those responsibilities are being handled, then you have the Xbox and you have your car and you have your phone. If these start dropping, the first responsibilities that leave are the ones, the extras. And, and, you're, and you tell parents, you, know, you tell your kids, it's not, we're not punishing you. It's really a training. It's a self-management training because we ultimately want you to do all responsibilities and juggle them just like juggling and just let it flow. But when they start getting in the way of the three main ones, those extra leave. And the parents who have actually explained that to teenagers that way versus, you know, this is going to be taken from you if you don't do, you know, you know, like threats, you know, rewards, like, Parent, you know, kids are like whatever, but when you use the actual word responsibility and you have your three main ones, these are just these other things are just other responsibilities and you're in charge of it. Like you all you get to figure out when you want them back by bringing your grade up or showing up at dinner without the phone or sitting at dinner for more than two seconds. Show us you can handle that responsibility and you can have these things back. We're, we don't care. We want you to have your screens like we want you to have your car. We want you to have everything that you want as long as it doesn't get in the way because parents when they move on they're going to have all of that so this is the this is it for you especially for parents of teens you have one two three years left to actually get these kids to manage themselves so when they're out in the world whether it's at a school or work they can do it but they can't do it if we keep micromanaging and not giving them the opportunity to practice 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 yeah, no, that's an excellent point. They do need to ultimately be the ones taking control of their tech use because they're not always going to be under our roof. And when they're in college, if they're staying up till 3 a.m. doing that, you know, to their detriment, yeah, mom's not there to, <laughs> to get well, involved. What we know is that frontal lobe is wide open. So the executive functioning isn't online. So their advanced planning and preparation and all of that. One of my biggest pet peeves, honestly, about the whole homework situation is they give the deadline that you can turn the paper in at midnight. So exactly. Yeah. More than, more than one time tears in the morning because somebody fell asleep and I was going to finish it, but I just want to take a quick nap. And the next thing I knew, I woke up at two in the morning and the mm -hmm. deadline had passed and now I didn't turn it in. I'm going to get an F. And you're like, I mean, 
I get it. They probably just set it for the day, but like telling a teenager you have until midnight is like the worst thing ever because of course they can't turn it in at eight and then go to bed. They have to wait, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that was something I didn't realize until I started talking to some educators that often when they set the turn-in date, it does default. Usually I think it's 1159 because that's the last possible time of that day. And then you're right, human nature, it does encourage kids to delay. So that's something certainly where schools can, can take a look at that, You know, changing the turn-in time. Parents also though can get involved to help kids ideally not leave it to the last minute. To your point about executive functioning, this is where they are still learning some of these planning skills. So there will be times when the assignment itself is broken into stages. You know, some teachers will do that. So it's, you know, first you're gonna do your introduction and then you're gonna do this, then you're gonna do this. But if they haven't, parents absolutely can get involved to help them manage those projects. So that that is another terrific suggestion to help them not be up not until do it hours. for them, parents, but no, help no, them no. manage it, right? <laughs> absolutely. And using the tone of voice, parents, where they don't feel like they're in trouble and they've done something wrong. You parents have to stay detached in this training program that we're talking about and set the limit, but without being angry about it. Like they're still learning how to live life. And we can't learn yeah. life without a lot of mistakes. So parents, Set the limits, stick to the limits, but you don't have to do it in a mean way. Absolutely, yeah. And then I have one more uh, bit of advice I would offer, which is to encourage your teen to develop a wind down routine. So, and this is something obviously for adults too, for all of us, because you can't just sort of run hard and then, you know, and work up until last minute and, you know, power down your computer and expect that your brain's gonna power down immediately also. I mean, we just, you don't work that way. So you do need some kind of wind down routine. So again, ideally you've disconnected from tech and you've started doing something else that is gonna help prime you for sleep. So for me, it's, you know, I'll read, I'll read an old school book as opposed to reading on a Kindle because obviously that's tech and there, there, um, there can be the impact from the blue light from these backlit screens. Um, it can be listening to music it can be taking a warm bath. I mean, whatever it is, but this is where it's the individual figuring out what is it that helps them wind down and getting that in place. And I actually have a, 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 an interesting anecdote that may be of interest to your audience. Um, huge proponent of wind down routines is a uh, doctor. Her name is Dr. Sherry Ma, and she works with pro teams. And so one of the players that she's worked with is Andre Iguodala. And when he came to her, I mean, it's, it's his great story. He, his sleep was, you know, he's obviously a phenomenal athlete, but his sleep was horrid. He was staying up until all hours, playing video games, get up early, go to practice, come home, take a big nap. And it was, um, you know, one of those situations where he finally realized, hey, this really isn't working. So she worked with him on that. But that whole concept of a wind down routine, I mean, like this is something it works for all of us. And it certainly works all the way up to the pro athletes. He was amazing, but he could be even more amazing if he wasn't, you know, essentially sabotaging his sleep. So because obviously, as you know, and anyone knows, Sleep is one of those foundational um, elements you need. No one's, no coach is going to say, oh, sure, go pull an all-nighter right before a big game. I mean, we know how important sleep is as a competitive advantage. So I thought that was... Um, Pro-life, Andre's actually a really good friend of mine, of my son's. Um, and it's a normal, and my son was in the NBA, so like, and they went to college together. But bottom line, it's really tough for those guys to 
be so high so late at night playing that sport and then having to go home and then unwind but to learn how to unwind without the videos the screens and it's the same thing for high schools for any sport that goes on till eight or nine it doesn't really matter but to learn how to do that our cult you know slowdown is it's huge and for you parents of the young kids you want to start that again it's something you want to start now not if, and not just because they're going to be athletes it's just in general you know to learn how to cut it off and then like you're saying create a routine to help calm everything all the nervous system down so that's um and good for andre that's one of the reasons he's played in the league so long he's uh this is good. I'm very impressed by that. So thank you for sharing that story. I'll have to oh, share. absolutely. Yeah. And how, how funny that, yeah, that you know him. I'd love, I'd love him to read the book. There's a whole chapter on sports and sleep in the book. And I have a, a, an anecdote all about him. So. Oh, good. <laughs> all right. That's great. Um, Lisa, what did you find in your research about gender differences? Was there anything, are men different than women, girls different than boys and how sleep affects us? Yeah, great question. Um, so the, the sad truth is, in general, uh, girls and women, and by that I mean biological, because a lot of this is biologically based, biological females tend to sleep worse than their male counterparts. Yeah, that up until puberty, um, and I spoke to some of the specialists about this, because I do have a chapter all about sleep disparities, but up until puberty, they really don't see any differences, but it's at puberty that, that these differences start to emerge. Um, and so, and, and some of it, you know, you think about it, um, some of it's tied to hormonal changes, the menstrual cycle. Um, and you know, when you think of the prevalence in the U S, um, about half of U S girls have gotten their periods by age 12. So just in terms of how, you know, how many of our teens this is affecting. Um, but then there are things like PMS, there are things like cramps, you know, all of these can affect your sleep. So unfortunately, that does tend to be the reality when we look at um, sex-based differences. But there are also differences uh, when it comes to um, sexual orientation, when it comes to um, race and ethnicity, um, often in both cases, unfortunately driven by discrimination, um, because when you are the target of everything from a microaggression on up, it does affect your sleep. It means that you generally are gonna sleep more poorly. It means also then you are less emotionally resilient the next day. So it really can turn into a vicious cycle. Um, and then there's another piece too, and it does often intersect with race and ethnicity and that's um, socioeconomic status and neighborhoods. Because if you live in um, a neighborhood that's impacting your sleep, that's yet another compounding factor. So if it's somewhere where you don't feel safe or um, it's noisy, it's crowded, uh, or if you don't have enough to eat and you're going to bed on an empty stomach, all of those impact your ability to get a good night's sleep. And then of course, you know, a teen can have several of those elements in play. So you can see the compounding effect because all of those are above and beyond everything else we were already talking about that our teens are facing. So it, it really can have some pretty um, detrimental effects on their sleep. So fascinating. Um, yeah, my daughter definitely sleeps less than my sons do, which is not, and I'm not a great sleeper either. So it's interesting or I don't need as much, but I think that's also part of being a mom too. We're constantly <laughs> on. Yeah, <laughs> they used yeah. to love 
when I was working and had the three kids, when I got sent on a road trip, I thought, oh, this is amazing. I'm going to have the best night of sleep. Didn't matter. Still up at five because that was what. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, no, I'm definitely not. I'm definitely not an, an early bird. And that's the point. Though. I mean, there is of course, human variability. So even yeah. for adults, our range is seven to nine hours. Um, and that's not to say there aren't outliers on either end, but by and large, most adults need somewhere between seven and nine to function, you know, at their best. And the same for teens, the range being eight to 10 hours, it is a range. But I think even that it's important for parents to remember, because so often we just hear this magical eight hours, you know, which is, is the midpoint for adults, but is the minimum for teens. So just to recognize that, yeah, it's possible your teen is going to be on the lower end of that range, but you know, chances are, if you're looking at eight as that, you know, the ideal, just to, to keep in mind that that really is the minimum. And it's likely that that uh, they could use more sleep and might function better and be happier with it. And parents, um, I for Christmas, I got my husband a whoop band, if you're familiar with whoop, but it's a band that you wear 24 seven, and it measures your sleep and how much time you're spending in REM and how restorative it is. And if you've recovered from the workout that you had the day before, um, I know at Boston University, where my son's playing basketball, they, their headquarters is literally on their street. So they're using them too. And it's become like a competition to see who can win, you know, get the most sleep on the team, like they're comparing each other's stats or whatever. But for my husband and for us, as we age, you know, we needed this as much and he, you know, now, so now he's tracking it and he's like, I'm getting four hours a night during the week and then catching up. And we know that's a really bad habit too, right? Like trying to compound it all at the, on the weekends and catch up. Like, that's not how this works. Like you have to have, you know, more of a baseline that supports your, you know, re regrowth and, and recharge, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And just to that point, one of the great analogies that one of the sleep scientists I've, I'm in very close contact with gives, which is, you know, compare it with food, you wouldn't, you know, starve yourself during the week and then try and make up for it on the weekends. So it really isn't something where you can just make up on the weekends. Um, so something to keep in mind. And not only that, it also makes it harder than because when Sunday night rolls around, you know, if you've slept in it's super late, um, you're not going to be able to fall asleep probably at a reasonable time. And it just perpetuates the cycle. You know, another thing too, around sleep and athletes and sleep and all teens is they, they say that it's the most important night of sleep. is not the night before a game or not, not the night before a big test, but the, the night before that, like that's the second night before whatever big events showing up. It's like me. I know when I travel, you know, I know I'm not going to sleep a lot the night before I have to get on an airplane. So it's like the night before that is when you want to really focus on getting a good chunk of sleep time, you know, for all your kids, for all everybody, but for the teens, especially because, yeah. you know, it's hard. I love yeah. your advice on come, I, I work my with my athletes on a pre a pre game routine, like a night, the, the night before, but then really making it an every night routine and, um, you know, laying down a yoga mat and doing some visualization and doing some meditation and having like a little routine that your body then clicks in. And this is how, how I relax before yeah, I have one client who's playing at USC now. And he was just like, I get so excited the night before I can't sleep. So let's put in a routine. So we're not just waiting until, okay, we got a big match, but this is how I show up. So you're, you can put a Pavlovian. Oh, this is how I wind down every night, whether I'm playing on the big stage tomorrow or whether I'm sleeping until noon, you know, like yeah. both of them, they should, you should be consistent. Or even if you can do it five nights a week, like it's a much more healthy way to approach sleep. 
Oh, did I lose you? Academics, things like learning, getting enough sleep while that learning is taking place, as opposed to trying to, you know, wait and, and learn it all and cram the night before. And the same with sports as you're learning new skills, because it's, you know, it's, it's not just that one night before the game, to your point, it's, um, it, it's having a consistent routine. And then as you pointed out, Kirsten, that way, when you are really, you know, amped up before a game that you, you have this routine, you have a way to help yourself kind of wind down so that you hopefully aren't going to be tossing and turning that evening before the big game or whatever it is. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Lisa. This has been amazing. I, we, as always, we learn from each other and I, I love doing these podcasts because it's always learning for me and ideas that I want to take back to my clients and to use with my family and myself. Um, and I bought five copies of your book. Everybody needs to go get it. The sleep deprived teen. I was giving it out as Christmas gifts this year. It's a must read for everybody who has a middle schooler or high schooler, because it's what we all need. So thank you so much for being on today. We so appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Love, love talking about sleep and uh, definitely enjoyed talking with both of you. Thank you. And parents, if you love the Raising Athletes podcast, please share it with your friends. We love getting passed around. And when you have questions, I'm even handing out my, my cell phone number. Give, give me a text, drop me a line. Let, let us know what, what are your burning questions that you want help with. 503-319-2209. And we hope to see you soon. Thanks so much. And we'll talk to you. Talk to you later. Let's, yeah. do, this. Let's do this.